Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Over 28 million Americans will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. Oftentimes, they suffer in silence. Binge eating disorder is just one of them. We'll talk with an area doctor and a recovering patient about treatment and options. I would not buy a pint of ice cream. I would have to buy two because I was worried that when the first one was done, it wouldn't be enough. The Women's Film Festival is right around the corner, and Sharaday Howard finds out what to watch with the artistic and programming director in this week's Shara in the City. We're featuring a number of Latinx filmmakers from Brazil, from Cuba, from all over. That's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. There are many eating disorders, and oftentimes people suffer in silence. It's simply a subject that's not discussed. One type of eating disorder is binge eating disorder, which is associated with various psychological and non psychological issues, but it can be managed with the proper help and guidance. Here to talk with us about it is Kelly Allison. She's professor of psychology and psychiatry at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also director of the Center for Weight and Eating Disorders. And also joining us is Caroline, who's a former binge eating disorder patient. Welcome. Thank Thank you for having us. So first of all, I guess we should start with the obvious, and that is to answer the question, what exactly is binge eating disorder? So binge eating disorder has two main parts. It is comprised of eating a very large amount of food in a discrete period of time, we usually say within a two-hour period, and that would be more food than somebody would typically eat uh, for a regular meal. So maybe more than two platefuls of food, three main courses or more. It's really significantly large. And the second part that accompanies that is this feeling of a loss of control. So somebody has to feel like once I start, I just can't stop myself from eating, Mm. almost like a ball starting to roll down the hill. It's just out of their control, and they may finish something even before they realize it, feeling like compelled, like I have to finish this whole thing. There's no way that they can stop. Like even if somebody called, um, somebody came to the door, they would likely just keep pushing through and finish um, what they were eating. Wow, okay. And if we could just go over some of the other types of eating disorders that people may or may not be familiar with. Sure. So 
Binge eating disorder was described back in the, the 50s. And even before that, a lot of people were more focused on anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. And with anorexia nervosa, people really restrict what they eat um, and eat very few calories. And sometimes we think this starts because people want to diet and you know, want that thin ideal um, that our society really promotes. There's other reasons for it, too. But once people get into that starvation mode, it really takes over, right? And people's thinking becomes very rigid, and they very much get caught up in this cycle because their brains are starved and they don't see another way around it, that they have to keep reducing what they're eating and maintain that thinness, and it's just never enough. Bulimia nervosa is also similar in some ways to binge eating disorder, and that's where binge eating disorder was first noticed um, because it also involves having binge episodes, right, where people eat a very large amount of food. But with bulimia nervosa, people have what we call inappropriate compensatory behaviors. So they may be vomiting or using laxatives or other means of trying to get rid of the food. Um, that doesn't happen in binge eating disorder, typically. Okay. Caroline, let's talk a little bit about your experience. I know you were a former binge eating disorder patient. When did you, and how old were you, when you first realized that you were experiencing binge eating disorder? I have recollections as far back as second grade of uh, inappropriately hoarding food or, or overeating in, in episodes like um, Dr. Allison described. Um, I would say, you know, in that elementary school age, it was uh, not far and few between, but it, it wasn't something that was routine. But I have clear recollections of, you know, when my mother would bring food home from the food store and mm-hmm. You know, I call it food that glows. You know, I would think, oh, wow, great. And it was clear that, you know, I was binging even all through elementary school. Wow. Now, Dr. Allison, is that common for someone to experience that at such a young age? It certainly can be. And sometimes it happens if parents are concerned about their children's weight and they become too restrictive in what they think their children should eat. And I think one important thing to know is these disorders are brain disorders, right? And so people's brains are wired to get that food no matter what. Mm -hmm. Kids may not have a lot of autonomy to go out and get the foods that they want to eat. And so what happens, as Caroline is describing, is that they may hide food in their rooms and hoard food and then eat it secretly. And then that sets up this pattern of lifelong secretive eating. Wow. You know, that's interesting because... Growing up with always having a weight issue, always having to be on a diet myself, you know, I used to like hide little foods or hide little things that I know if my mom saw that I had a chocolate bar, like, oh boy, what are you doing with the chocolate bar? So I'm like hiding it and had no idea that something like that, you know, could materialize into, you know, some kind of eating disorder. And I I guess it's really difficult uh, to spot, to, to recognize the signs of binge eating disorder. Yes. Well, my experience as I got older and and certainly as I got out in the world, it wasn't difficult to spot because it was so outside the norm of my usual behavior. Mm. I mean, it was a compulsion, and I totally agree that it was a brain situation. I call it my crazy. And I would get to the point where I couldn't fight off the compulsion anymore, and then my behavior really was inappropriate. I mean, I would get up in the middle of the night and go to a a 7-Eleven and— Um, have a binge episode. And then, you know, as Dr. Allison said, the remorse was clear. And, you know, I really have lost my mind. What am I doing? Mm. Um, And it 
certainly was not a lack of knowledge about good nutrition. And I've been in a lot of, you know, very healthy uh, weight control programs. Mm -hmm. I've done behavior modification. Um, I met Dr. Allison through a program at Penn where they were doing um, food replacements where you got cognitive therapy, but you were also eating calorie-controlled foods, which was great. And I always laugh. I've sort of lost and gained the same 30 pounds, I don't know, a dozen times in my adult life. So, you know, the understanding that what I should do was never a problem for me because I really made it my business to learn and to be pretty cognizant. But there was this behavior that was just totally out of character. And, you know, and when I would talk to therapists about it, um, we really knew that it wasn't part of what even a normal dieting person would behave that way. So um, that was really my experience. Yeah. You know, a lot of us, you know, we, we throw words around like foodies, you know, we love to eat and we're going to go pig out at this barbecue or we're going to stuff our faces and all of that stuff. And, you know, so seeing someone eating a lot, perhaps it's not a big deal. People may think, oh, OK, well, she just likes to eat a lot. And then you have the Internet mm-hmm. that has the uh, I mean, we can we can definitely talk about that. But I want to first talk about there are videos that people can just log on and watch people gorge on food like binge like huge tables of food and they're sitting there and they're just stuffing their faces and they're just eating and eating and eating and people watch this it's very strange uh, that that uh, whole phenomenon of people just wanting to see people eat and people wanting to just eat that way and i don't know if the internet is helping us or hurting us when it comes to that um but uh that i find very very interesting but uh like i said a lot of us say that we're foodies we just love to eat you know we it's for pleasure for most of the time. But when it comes to binge eating, this isn't about pleasure. No, I think that's a very important point. A lot of times binge eating, whether it's in the context of binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, any of these other eating disorders, it isn't necessarily about hunger or sitting down and enjoying a nice meal with your family yeah. or even something like Thanksgiving where you know in advance you're going to be eating a lot. This is more about a couple of things that can be about. So one, it can be about emotions, right? If we're having a stressful day or we're upset about something, often people who are wired for eating disorders will turn to food and basically have this large amount of food. And a lot of people call it like, I get into my food coma, right? So they eat a lot of food. They zone out from whatever problems, whatever worries they had, And they don't have to think about them, at least for a little while. They're still there, of course, (laughs) at the end of the day, but it's a distraction. The other reason is sometimes people are very much tuned into the food environment and they get a thought about a specific food in their head and they can't get it out of their head. So even though they're trying to work or trying to watch a movie or doing something else, this isn't just like a regular, oh, I know there's Oreos on the counter, right? I'm going to go have a few. (laughs) This is you know, I, I know those Oreos are there. I really don't want to have them, but they're there. And this could go on for hours, right? And so finally, oh, I'm just going to have a couple, but that's never a couple, right? It's the whole package. And then you feel horrible and, and guilty and just gross yeah. overall, right? Yeah. So um, those are two main presentations I usually see is like mm-hmm. a specific thought of food or also just trying to self-medicate against uncomfortable emotions. A lot of us do self-medicate. We talk about that all the time. You know, you buy the kind of ice cream before you know it or the big bag of chips. And you're like, wait, did I? Oh, I ate all of that. Or, ooh, I ate the whole pint. Um, but I guess there's a difference between having some episodes of that when you're feeling down and you're doing that to doing it 
more often? How do you know the difference between I'm just comforting myself and I'm in this moment and, okay, I, I really have a problem? So mindless eating is one thing, right? Okay. A lot of us bring a bag of chips in and watch a movie, and before you know it, you've eaten more than you've realized. This has more of that compulsive flavor to it. It's more like I'm going to go to the Wawa and buy 2,000 calories worth of food, and I'm going to sit in my car, and I'm going to eat that. Um, or I'm going to order a pizza and fries and onion rings, and I know I'm going to eat that. So it's um, in some ways more deliberate. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but it's um, not mindless in nature. It's more compelled. I would agree with that. And if I was in the middle of you know pursuing a binge, I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine this week. I would go to a store. I would not buy a pint of ice cream. I would have to buy two because I was worried that when the first one was done, it wouldn't be enough. So I had to buy two or, you know, planning to have a binge that I needed secrecy, number one, and then what am I going to do with all the garbage? What am I going to do with all the, the remnants of it? So I think one thing that's somewhat important to distinguish is, you know, Americans, we suffer from an environment that's very easy to gain weight. Yeah. Our portions are gigantic. Mm -hmm. The availability of fast food, uh, yeah, fast food, you know, the way that our social lives, all of those things. And those are challenges, and I still have those challenges. But the whole binge behavior is very discreet and very um, separate from the normal everyday, you know, I have to try and lose 20 pounds because my knees hurt or, you know, it's my health or I'm having a high school reunion. Um, it really is sort of an uncontrollable um, compulsion that can be fought, but is difficult. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. You mentioned that you would buy not one pint, but buy two because you didn't think that perhaps one would be enough. And I'm thinking, our stomachs can only hold so much. So the binge eating is to the point of pain or discomfort, yes? Could be, sure. There wasn't an off switch. So mostly the end of a compulsive episode for me was um, when I ran out of whatever I had bought to binge on. It had nothing to do with feeling physical satiation. Wow. You know, it really had to do with how much is going to be enough. There was never a time when I didn't eat it all whatever I had purchased or planned. Yeah. Well, there's certain triggers, um, certain things that would happen, um, maybe movies and music, anything. Were there any particular things that would trigger you into having a binge episode? I think for some people, the stimulation of advertising and all could easily be a trigger. It didn't happen to be mine. Sometimes there was no trigger at all. Things were great. And just in my head, I had this compulsive thought and eventually gave into it. And I fought it for, you know, I mean, it wasn't that I didn't say, oh, this is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but so I'm not sure that it was any sort of external stimuli. It could be, you know, a very stressful situation that made me much more likely to start that compulsive chain. I don't know that it caused it, but it was a solution for me because mm -hmm. then I would feel numb or free of whatever that worry was unfortunately then i would end up with two problems because i had the problem that may have triggered the binge and the binge 
Right. So it really was not a solution, but my brain would tell me that it would be. Right. And of course, at the end of the binge, there's the guilt and that heavy feeling of, why did I just do this? Exactly. But it doesn't stop the next episode. It may postpone the next episode. I would say that, I don't know if there is a good part of what my binge eating disorder, but I was never a person who binged every day. And thankfully, I'm really, really grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mine was more episodic. There might be weeks where I would not. And then other times, for whatever reasons, it would happen more frequently. Um, But yeah, there was always that heavy feeling, not only literally, but figuratively, you know, the, that guilt and that shame. I think that is one of the, you know, earmarks of binge eating disorder. Most people who eat too much at Thanksgiving don't end up beating themselves about it for a week. Right, right. And most people don't, with binge eating disorder, don't have that feeling of fullness or satiety. And so that is partly what keeps that episode going. And some research even shows that people who have binge eating disorder actually have larger stomach capacities because over time their stomachs actually learn to stretch and accommodate it. Yeah. Who is more likely to suffer from binge eating disorder? So as with most eating disorders, women are more likely to be diagnosed with it. But I would say with binge eating disorder, it's much more of uh, equal opportunity eating disorder. And we definitely see a higher proportion of men with binge eating disorder than anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, as well as across racial and ethnic identities. Um, so I, I would say out of those three eating disorders, it generally is uh, the most people with the most diversity mm-hmm. suffer from it. Mm-hmm. And um, we see that in treatment as well as in larger studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk about the fact that girls are, you know, more um, susceptible to any kind of eating disorder. And um, we were talking about the Internet not long ago and how social media especially doesn't help with that at all. Do you find that that's the issue with a lot of girls who suffer from an eating disorder? Social media is definitely a double-edged sword. There are many healthy communities that people can tune into, but it's just too easy to go on Instagram and see these influencers. And it is true that so many people come in and they get hooked on, you know, they turn on their their social media to to look at what their friends are doing, but then they see all of these other posts and then they, they want to get on a streak, right? I want to yeah. work out and get my abs for this many days, or I want to do this. But, you know, a lot of people end up over-restricting, and they can't maintain that. And then they end up having an overeating episode or a binge episode. And that can be one way that people kind of get into this cycle. And I've certainly seen that, especially with um, folks in younger generations who are on social media constantly. It's mm-hmm. very hard to tune out or to take a break from that. So it's almost like this constant, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And in regards to body image, self-esteem is definitely one of the factors that is a trigger for eating disorders if people are susceptible to them. Absolutely. I'm wondering what advice you can give to parents, especially parents when you were bringing up kids, it's don't eat this, don't eat that. Sometimes it's clean your plate, but don't eat too much. So, you know, we're trying to strike that balance for our kids to be healthy. But if we're too strict you know, things could kind of go left, so to speak. It's tricky to be a parent for many reasons, (laughs) and eating is definitely one of those. And I would always just recommend moderation is the way to go. So we really don't want to villainize foods. There are a lot of foods that really just probably aren't so good for us that are really highly processed and all of that. But it is the food environment we live in. And so if we tell somebody, no, you can't have it, what does somebody do? They want it, right? So if we can say, okay, yeah, we can have that in moderation, 
let's choose when we're going to have a dessert, right? But we're not going to have three desserts a day. We are going to have a portion of it and we will enjoy it as a family and basically um, back off of you can't have it kind of rhetoric. Now that may or may not help somebody, right? They may still develop an eating disorder, but it is more helpful if a child grows up in an environment where they know they can talk about food with their family as opposed to having it be villainized. Understand. Caroline, talk about how binge eating disorder affected your quality of life. And and how long did you were you dealing with a binge eating disorder? Well, it started as I said very young and although I feel like I am a former binge eating disordered person. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not 100% gone. Um, so, you know, I think it is a lifelong, not struggle, but a lifelong focus. And um, certainly, you know, things like middle school where I was an overweight child and had a, a smattering of bullying, nothing compared to what kids go through today. You know, it was incomprehensible to me that I really wanted to not be overweight, and yet I couldn't find a way to not be overweight. And um, it wasn't just the idea of, you know, more sports or whatever. It was this idea in my head that I didn't have the ability to have that self-control, which was a self-esteem problem then, Mm -hmm. because then I had two problems. I wasn't in a body shape that I thought was appropriate. And I also had this idea that I don't know what is going on here, this out-of-control thinking. Right. Um, I think as I aged and I got more education about eating and eating disorders and and did the work, it was less about feeling inadequate and more about understanding that this is a disorder and I can really work on it. And there'll be days when I am very successful and then there are days when I may not be as successful and that doesn't mean all is lost. So it's not as all or none for me anymore. Um, there is a medication that Dr. Allison introduced me to, I don't know, seven years ago, and that has been a tremendous help in uh, solving the crazy, as I call it in my head, that the compulsion to do it is almost completely gone from taking um, this medication, which is called Vyvanse. It's a, a form, I believe, of Ritalin, and it definitely removed the compulsion, the mental obsession and compulsion with binging. I might still eat too much of a dessert, but I'm not out at a convenience store buying two pints of Haagen-Dazs anymore. Right. And I cannot tell you how wonderful that is. Right. Um, it's very freeing and I don't think solves all the problems, as I mentioned, you know, where you live in a very food environment. But for me, it gave it more of an even playing field that I wasn't dealing with everything that everybody deals with and a compulsion that, you know, I would consume 5,000 calories in one sitting That's very hard to control. Dr. Allison, when was this medication introduced to uh, help treat uh, binge eating disorder? So this medication has been around for a while to treat ADHD, and people started realizing that it had an effect on appetite and thinking about food. And at that point, the manufacturer started looking at it as a potential agent to treat binge eating disorder. So this was approved in the early 2000s as a treatment for binge eating disorder, and it remains the only FDA-approved medication for binge eating disorder currently. Um, And it basically does help people pay attention to other things. And for whatever reason, I don't think we really fully understand the mechanism. It, It does reduce that drive to eat and also just 
takes away some of that noise, right, that mm. people with binge eating disorder have in their head, whether it's their magic time is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right, or maybe it's after they get out of work, or that it does seem to help tamp down uh, those thoughts of food that were so disruptive previously. Besides the medication, what are the primary treatment modalities for um, binge eating disorders? I'm thinking perhaps psychotherapy is something that could help an individual get through it. Yes, exactly. So cognitive behavioral therapy is the therapy that we offer um, in our clinic at Penn Medicine. Mm. It has been validated for all of the eating disorders, and it really does help try to hit that gray area, that middle spot. So it's not all or nothing, as Caroline was describing, that I can't have any of these foods, right, ever again, we basically try to walk that back. Well, in what situations, right, would it be okay to have it and enjoy it without having to stock your freezer with ice cream and really having to rely on willpower? We don't want to have to rely on willpower. We want to be smart about how we expose ourselves to the foods that we eat. Um, But also just gets at, you know, what are you doing when you're upset, right? And we offer some skills um, to patients to really think through when you're upset, how quickly can you maybe notice that now instead of waiting and you're already down a rabbit hole into your own thoughts and, you know, at the freezer, at the convenience store before you know it, how can we pull out a mental stop sign and say, well, wait a minute, this is happening. I'm getting upset or I'm getting anxious. Can I stop this right here and basically see what is going on and how can I address these thoughts and these feelings before I end up making a decision that I don't want to make? Yeah. Caroline, I know the medication helped you. What are the other ways that you were able to work through the disorder? Well, I had already been seeing um, Dr. Allison for cognitive behavioral therapy, and it was extremely helpful. And we worked on all of the um, concepts that she just articulated, particularly the idea of the thought and then giving it space before the action, Mm. because a compulsion generally, there's no space. It's thought act thought, act, go. And that idea of wait, just wait, and frequently it passes, or I get distracted with something else, or I do something more enjoyable than giving in to this compulsion. And it's extremely, extremely helpful to have not only the knowledge of that, but the practice of doing it, um, you know, knowing that there is a different way. And um, prior to even starting on any medication, my binge eating disorder had gotten much, much, much better. Um, The idea of being very restrictive was one of my coping mechanisms where if I just eat the same food every single day, I'll be good. And I've done that on occasions for months and sometimes even years and was able to lose weight. And it just took all the choice out of it. I work on it all the time. And my quality of life is enormously better that I took the challenge to see what I could figure out. And I also have this wonderful resource at the University of Pennsylvania where, you know, I know that the information that's being given is correct, cutting edge, not going to be harmful to me. And and that gave me a lot of confidence. Well, good for you. Thank you. Honestly, uh, it's very difficult. Um, In this country, eating is a pastime. Whenever we celebrate, let's go out to eat. We get together. Let's go out to eat. Everything is food, food, food. So it's it's <laughs> it can be difficult to navigate those uh, those waters, especially when you you have a propensity to perhaps eat more or you know look at your body and say I don't like what I'm seeing, but I'm going to keep eating. I mean, the, uh, all the different disorders that are out there, I can see how difficult uh, it can be for uh, someone to um, recognize and get through it. But uh, if someone 
sees the signs or or is hearing this and going, you know what, I think I may have a problem or I know someone that may have a problem, what should they do? Well, I think sometimes eating disorders can impact relationships, of course, right? Because a lot of this happens in secret. And I've even heard some of our patients describe it as like they're almost having an affair with the food, right? Mm. It becomes, when am I going to do this? And I don't want them seeing it on my our credit card, so I'm going to pay in cash. And it becomes another life, so to say, right? And maybe they'll go out and have a binge and still come home and have dinner with their family because they don't want their family to know that they're doing this. Mm. And so it, it does create a wedge, an honest and open relationship if people are hiding this. And so if a spouse is worried or a partner or a friend or, or parent is worried, it is important to open up about it and not be critical, but use I statements and say, I notice that something doesn't seem quite right. And I just want to talk about it. I think you might be struggling and this is what I've seen. I've seen that, you know, come home and you're not in a great mood and whatever it is that you're noticing, use it in a way to saying this is what I see so that they don't become so defensive if you do bring it up and let them know that you just want to talk about it so that you can figure out a solution together. Okay. And how can people learn more? Is there a hotline or anywhere that you would direct people to resources to learn more about this? The National Eating Disorders Association has a, a nice webpage, so and that can cover anywhere in the country with resources. Um, we have our Center for Weight and Eating Disorders at the University of Pennsylvania. There are other um, universities and resources at the hospitals in our city, too. We have actually some really great people in the city who offer treatment, and I think if people look up binge eating disorder, those also will pop up. Okay. Dr. Kelly Allison and Caroline, thank you so much for sharing your story, Caroline. I do appreciate that. And Dr. Allison, thank you so much for giving us all the information on binge eating disorders. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The fall means the return of many art festivals, including the Women's Film Festival, which attracts filmmakers from all over the world to participate in screenings and workshops. Shara Day Howard shares more with the latest Shara in the City. The Women's Film Festival is back and with an exciting lineup of films beginning September 21st through October 1st. There'll be screenings, workshops, networking opportunities for filmmakers and audiences, including Philly filmmakers and others from across the world. Susie Nash with the festival says the films touch on issues surrounding women building community. The festival also acknowledges Hispanic Heritage Month with a number of films by Latinx filmmakers. So we got the skitty from one of the organizers, Susie Nash. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Susie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. Tell me about it, who's involved, all the things. Sure. So it's a festival of films that are made by, for, or about women. Uh, it's going to run for 10 days and we're at several different locations throughout the city. Our opening night is September 21st. And that's going to be at the uh, Perlman Building of the Philadelphia Art Museum. And we have an amazing film called Show Her the Money. And it's all about women in finance. And um, it's an interesting documentary. I don't know if you knew this, but in terms of uh, money, venture capital money going to women, what percentage do you think goes to women out of all the venture capital money in the world? I would probably say about 5%. Pretty close, 2%. Wow, boy. That's it. That's disappointing. (laughs) It is. So we have this incredible film talking about it. Um, We have the directors coming in, the producers coming in. I don't know if you know Vicki Pace. She's the person who started uh, Dapper Boy. And she was actually on Shark Tank with that. And so she'll be here. So that's our opening night film. 
After that, we moved to Moore College of Art in the Graham Auditorium, and we are there for three days, from the uh, 22nd through the 24th. And then from the 26th through October 1st, we're going to be at the neighborhood house in uh, Old City. So let's talk about why this is so important right now, why this is so right on target. It seems like these days, right now, women are being told a lot of things. We're told what we can wear. We're told what we can do with our bodies. We're told what we can say, or even more importantly in Florida, what we're not allowed to say. Uh, So this is a chance for women to tell their own stories and speak for themselves. And we have films from all around the world. And it's amazing to see how many themes are universal and then also see the differences in sometimes what people are in other countries are, are dealing with. And it's almost perfect timing because right here in Philadelphia, we have such a large number of women who are starting their own businesses, venturing into entrepreneurship, and they really need the support, but also not just the financial support, they need the moral support. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we really try to cater to with our film festival. Uh, we have a filmmaker's brunch that we do on both weekends. Uh, We do a lot of events where we try to let people who are coming to see the films network with the filmmakers as well. There's no substitute for a good connect. Absolutely. (laughs) It is the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Aside from the screenings, we're going to do two panels, which we're really excited about, on both Saturdays. And what we're inviting a lot of the filmmakers to come and just talk about women in films, what they've experienced, what's different from their experiences, their you know, Me Too moments that they've had. Uh, and we've done this the past few years, and it's really led to some really great discussions. So whether you're a film lover or a filmmaker, it's a really good opportunity to find out what goes on behind the scenes as well. So let's talk about art in Philadelphia, and particularly filmmaking. I don't think people always peg Philadelphia as one of these starter spots, but I think it really is with regard to film. Yeah, and actually our opening night, we're also screening a film from uh, Monique Impagliazzo, who's a filmmaker from Philadelphia. Uh, We screened her short film, Turkey's Done, which had Sherry O'Terry in it, uh, and who came here and who's a riot. We're actually going to be screening a music video that she just shot. And we're actually just started a uh, production company with a number of the core people from the film festival. And we're going to be producing a full-length feature film of hers. Amazing. So not only is Philadelphia a place to connect and thrive, but it's really a place to kind of just explore explore your talents explore it with people next to you and really just kind of pull each other up absolutely and one of the things also if you're just sort of thinking about getting into this business we're always looking for volunteers so we can always use help at the festival so give me some highlights what are you looking forward to oh gosh well of course for me i always love meeting the filmmakers especially the ones from out of town and showcasing philadelphia and letting them see what an amazing city this is i'm known for doing tours with people at like one o'clock in the morning after the last screening you know, people are like, oh, my plane's at 8 a.m. And I'm like, it's not too late. <laughs> you can still see our city. <laughs> I love that. Let's go. So that's, you know, one of them. Uh, I know we have the filmmakers coming all the way from Turkey. So we have people coming in from all over the world. We have over 100 films that we're going to be screening. And that includes features and short films. Uh, we've got comedy. We've got uh, pathos. We've got tragedy. We've got rom-coms. Our closing night film is a real fun film called Jess Plus None. Oh, I love it. Pretty much a little bit of everything. Now, if people want to get involved, people want to, like you said, get their foot in the door, how do they do that? You can go to thewomensfilmfestival.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all are welcome, either watching the film and or behind the scenes. Yes, all are welcome. And I should mention, you know, we also have a lot of men who come out and support our festival. And one of our films is a great film called uh, Conducting Life. And it's about a male conductor and his journey as a black male becoming a new conductor of a classical orchestra. And uh, the filmmaker actually is going to be here. 
Yeah, actually, one of, one of the things, speaking, it's also going to be taking place during uh, National Hispanic Heritage Month. So this year we're featuring a number of Latinx filmmakers, a lot of films that are concentrating on the Latin community from Brazil, from Cuba, from all over. So we're really excited about that. And again, a lot of those filmmakers are going to be here, part of our panel and part of some of the films that we're screening. Wonderful. All the things. And we're going to try to do a little special things. With some of the films, we try to have a little live music sometimes. So we're going to so what we're add- going to do now. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a little extra at some of our screenings. We might even do a couple of bingo games. Oh. We have a little miniature documentary about playing bingo. Surprise, surprise, surprise. So if you guys want to come out, get involved, look at the website. We'll see you there. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>